We've got another classic dunghill passage. I know we all love those ones. The first few times that I read this passage when I was preparing to preach it, um, the destruction really struck me. But before we get into looking at the destruction, I want to really focus on the first verse, which I nearly ignored on my first reading. It says, Lord, I lift you up high. I will praise your name because you've already done wonderful things, plans formed, distant and old and faithful and sure. These are the kind of verses that often get overlooked when we're reading Bible passages. They seem like the author's just warming up and uh, throwing out some platitudes, maybe. But I want to encourage us to slow down and, and look at verse 1. Whenever you see LORD in all caps in a Bible, uh, it means a very specific name for God. There's lots of words for describing God in Greek and Hebrew, which are the languages that the books of the Bible were written in. but but there's a personal name for God that, that translates I am, and that's the covenant name of God. It's a special, specific name. It's Yahweh. And the chapter begins by calling out to Yahweh. And for a lot of us, I suspect, uh, at various times, the word God is not really used as a name. Uh, it's more of just a word that we use for a concept this distant deity that we suspect exists or at least existed. I just finished the book, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr, and there's this startling line in the book that says, but God is only a white, cold eye, a quarter moon poised above the smoke, blinking, blinking, as the city is gradually pounded to dust. That is such a 20th century, World War II infused way of looking at God, and that has carried on into the 21st century. God as an idea of something, something that was maybe once powerful, now trapped above to only observe the unfurling of time and consequences. God is an impersonal audience to the human experience, if we even believe in God anymore. Isaiah's hymn is quite the opposite. So a lot of people like to call this a hymn or a song that's in the book of Isaiah. And it views God not as a vague deity like we postmodern Western people might. Uh, rather, God is personal and imminent and active. The first word of the passage in the Hebrew is this name for God, Yahweh, the personal name for God. It's not a description of an idea. It's a name that follows with a doxology. So a doxology, we sing that here, so I wanted to unpack what that word is when you, when you hear that all the time. A doxology is a, is a formula that praises God. Doxa, meaning glory, and logia, meaning word. It's a word of glory. And Isaiah is calling God by name to give him glory at the beginning of this passage. Pastor Eugene Peterson describes this contrast between uh, poetry like Isaiah and, and our modern idea of God by saying this. God talk is human speech in which God is depersonalized into a language of information, manipulation, propaganda, and gossip. God talk is human speech in which God is depersonalized into a language of information, 
manipulation, propaganda, and gossip. And Peterson goes on to say that prophets don't explain God. They shake us out of old conventional habits of small-mindedness and trivializing God gossip. They set us on our feet in wonder and obedience and worship. So as we look at Isaiah 25, I, I want us to shed our conception that God is an idea to dissect and categorize and catalog and archive. God is Yahweh, the steady, faithful, strong, personal God who renovates a broken world, sifts out injustices, covers the wounded, and feasts with his people. Isaiah is not concerned with concepts of theology or an ideological view of God, right? This hymn begins with calling on God, Lord. That is what Peterson is calling God gossip. God gossips when we study about God or we talk about God or we read about God as if he's not living and active and present. Isaiah is not talking about God. He is talking to God. He's speaking to God saying, hello, hello to the great I am. I sing great things about you. The things you've done are wonderful. They go back to the beginning of time and you must have wonderful things planned for the future. Not being into God gossip, being into talking to God is a core value at Salem Prez and we fail at it often. I fail at it. I will talk about God and faith conceptually so much more than I actually address God personally. But nevertheless, as a church, we aspire to be a people that are God-loving, not God-gossiping. Things like community and social justice and missions are lifeless if we don't have a love and a friendship with the doer of those wonderful things. So this is a reason right now that we want our small groups to be intentional places for that, vital spaces where we worship God directly. Imagine spending years of your life studying a person you were going to marry. You read about them and you discuss this person with other people who are familiar with facts about the person, but you don't actually spend intimate time with the person. You spend hours trying to categorize their actions into ways that you understand, and you uh, read expert critical thinkers on their ways, and you get together in groups to analyze writings by and about your future spouse. But then when you go to walk through a crisis with this person, they just seem like a helpless, distant stranger. This is the danger the Western church faces. I've often traded the chance to gather in homes to talk to God for the chance to talk about God. And I long for this church that I love so much to be a place where people would gather every week, say around a, a pot of tea and a candle, and where the first thing said is not a long vent about co-workers or a critical historical analysis of God as an idea that we read about, but instead that it would be a place where people talk to God through songs 
and open up their Bible to the Psalms to celebrate God in direct address and where vulnerable sinners confess to, 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 to one another with real hope for healing from a God that they can speak to. So that's verse 1. And now we have 110 minutes to get through the next 11 verses. So I want to look at two more themes in Isaiah 25, okay? I want to look at the power of God as the renovator of his creation. And I want to look at the coming kingdom. So I want to look at God as the renovator of his creation. And I want to look at the coming kingdom. When I was translating through this passage, I wrote in the, I wrote in the margin just terrorism? Question mark? When I worked through verse 2. God made this city a heap. He ruined an impenetrable city. And perhaps most troubling, he destroyed the foreigner's place forever. In verse 5, we see that God is silencing noisy foreigners. In verse 10, Moab is trampled down like a dunghill. In verse 12, the high fortress of some nation's strong walls are cast down into dust. God is doing a lot of destroying here. And that raises two questions for me. One, who are the foreigners? And two, is it okay that God is destroying their city and their lives? So first, foreigners. When I hear foreigner, I hear two things. I either, I either image in my mind an immigrant, or I imagine a helpless person in, a, in some colonizing-prone country. A few commentators call this the world city, world meaning uh, temporary or, or fleshly. It's the image of a place of pride and haughtiness and oppression. One scholar calls this all those arrogant bastions of power that have crushed the righteous through all of time. Or in the words of Ben Milner, the empire. If you go to church here long enough, you'll know that the empire is a strong theme in, in our senior pastor's sermons. So this raises the second question. Is it okay for God to destroy these places? Maybe you're not like me, but again, I was startled by God's destruction. And I found it, I found it troubling. It felt unjust to me. But my North Atlantic, North American, Western... Liberal, liberal arts education, that mindset made me sensitive to this tone of colonialism here. And I suspect, knowing a lot of you, that you might be there too. It might sound to you like the immigrant is being put down and the lands of the innocent are being colonized. But I have learned the hard way that it takes a certain amount of privilege that I have to read scripture with that lens. Here's what I mean by saying that it takes a certain amount of privilege to be offended by the destruction in this passage. You're probably familiar with the story of Philando Castile. And if you're not, uh, for some backdrop, I just want to say that not everyone in our nation agrees with, with how the press might cover it. And I'm not endorsing any view of handguns in what I'm saying here. But here's how this story kind of plays out. It's the right of Americans to lawfully carry a handgun. And for advocates of this right, of this, uh, this right as, as citizens, which are on both sides of our political polarity, there's an important talking point, which is this. People who lawfully obtain handgun permits and the training to carry a handgun can be trusted as responsible citizens. 
Now, again, I'm neither endorsing nor disputing this view. Again, please just give me grace to not be distracted by that issue. The point is that for many Americans, being a licensed carrier of a handgun is evidence of responsible citizenship. Because you've gone through the process of the paperwork and the courses and the training. And last summer, Philando Castile was driving in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. Mr. Castile was an assistant nutrition coordinator in the public school system and he was a licensed handgun carrier. He was also a black man. So last summer he was pulled over for the 52nd time in 14 years. And when he was pulled over, he followed all the rules that he was taught. And we know that because you can listen to the, to the recording of, of, of all of this. He immediately informed the officer that he was carrying a handgun and obeyed the officer's request for his paperwork. But returning to my earlier assertion, it's a high bar, right, to be a licensed uh, handgun carrier. And many people believe that this is sort of evidence uh, of responsibility. But this trust was not applied to Philando Castile, and he was shot and killed without any act of aggression. And it happened right in front of his family. And I bring this up because it's, it's tragic and it's unjust. This man was a law-abiding and uh, a contributor to the common good of his city, but his life was taken because of prejudice. Uh, if you don't know my wife, Erin, she works in maternal and child health in developing nations. So she used to work in Guatemala and now she works in Ethiopia. She travels a lot to work in best practices for uh, women and uh, children in those countries. And she has helped me understand this same concept of reading, reading these destructive passages, uh, that I read them differently than people who've experienced injustice. So here's an example of what she's learned. In the 1970s, Nestle was aggressively marketing formula as good uh, and breast milk as inadequate. And this was especially done in developing countries among the poor. They promoted infant formula over breastfeeding. Nestle was telling people in these places with dirty water and little income that infant formula was a healthier, more developed way of feeding babies. They went so far as to pay physicians to dispense this as medical advice. Mothers were spending what little they had to buy formula, which they mixed with contaminated water. This was a totally avoidable injustice. But many babies lost their lives because of this greed. And even though the World Health Organization and UNICEF fought this in the 80s, Aaron says that this myth still persists in those developing countries. And I imagine there's a lot of pain when people learn that the outcome could have been different for their child. So am I saying this to make the privileged amongst us feel guilty? No, not at all. I just want some of us to understand something that I'm continually to have to learn. Uh, Rob Warfield, our, our missionary in Senegal, is probably the first person that really introduced me to this idea that people who have dealt with oppression do not read passages in the Bible that talk about God's vengeance and destruction and say, this makes me uncomfortable. They say, I am so thankful that that, that, that God exists. They see the destruction and they see it as remedial in a way that the privileged among us may not. They're aching for creation's demolition and renovation. 
This demolition is, is part of the renovation. It's part of the renovation where the builder sledgehammers the dysfunctional and decayed parts of the structure. And after the demolition comes construction of something with integrity and freshness. So I hope that this walkthrough of that idea of reading it through injustice can couch the destruction as not just uh, breaking down, but a part of the kingdom coming. Which provides a good transition to the next point, which is I want to talk about the kingdom of God coming. See, this renovation of creation that we're seeing here, it's sometimes called apocalyptic. Uh, ben has mentioned this in some of his sermons, that Isaiah has these features of this thing called apocalypse. And apocalypse just means that uh, it's a moment where God in the spiritual realm is breaking through into the earthly world. It's the redemption of the oppressed and the resetting of creation. So this is an apocalyptic hymn, a song by Isaiah that's celebrating that God will renovate a broken creation. The distressed and the needy will be rescued and restored. And there's a lot of beautiful imagery in this passage that didn't come to the surface to me at first because I was so focused on the destruction. There's so many parts of the Old Testament that are really imagistic. And in these 12 verses, we have these visualizations of storms beating against a wall and cool shade, perhaps from clouds or trees, dry heat, a desert, more cloud cover, and mountains. These images all serve to describe God as the Lord who does wonderful things, who dwells amongst people, his people, by sheltering them from the storm. God subdues the noisiness of the empire, and he makes a feast, and he serves up vintage wine, and he swallows up the shame of his people. There's the visual of landscapes and natural forces. There's the taste of rich food, the sound of singing praises, and there's a tranquil silence after noisy oppression is put down. And there's the aroma of aged wine. God is the maker and the sustainer of the natural world, of our senses, of our material being. In this passage, God is renovating his creation, starting with the demolition of the empire. This with the aim of restoring things to their beautiful intended design. God's redemptive plans span what verse 1 says, the distant and old, the faithful and sure. It's implied that creation is disordered. And in verse 2, Isaiah imagines God making the empire a heap of ruining that seemed to be of what seemed to be an impenetrable city. And we see in verse 3 that God is not simply destroying the world, he's renovating it. How do we know that from verse 3? Well, because it's not just the poor, it's also the strong and mighty, influential people are celebrating what God is doing. In his commentary on this verse, John Calvin says, if the Lord would destroy the world, no good, no good result would follow. And indeed, destruction would not produce uh, praise, but horror. And what Calvin's saying is, uh, essentially, why would God just destroy what he has made when he wants his people to celebrate what he does? That wouldn't make sense. So you might be asking yourself, when is this supposed to happen? 
When is it supposed to happen that God is going to do this renovation? Is it, is it in Christ 2,000 years ago? Or is it in the future? And I believe that it's, it's both. Part of the confusion with reading passages like this, what's called prophetic and apocalyptic literature in the Bible, which just means reading stuff that talks about God's actions to correct and repair and restore things. Part of the challenge with that is that Christians have struggled to agree on how to situate these things in history. And that, that is a way long conversation to not get into tonight. But one of the reasons that our church calls ourselves Calvinist, that's something that we call ourselves, is because we believe with John Calvin that the events laid out in scripture are not some linear puzzle that's being put together where there's the old stuff first and then there's a break with Jesus and then new stuff changes things. Instead, we believe that all of the Bible is one coherent story and that passages like this one are not specific codes to decipher as much as their imagery that points us to what God has done, is doing, and, and will do in the future. It starts with his people longing for redemption in the Old Testament, seeing it begun in Christ's first coming, and then fulfilled in the end of time. Starting with Abraham to Christ, through our present time, the distressed and the needy have found solace in God. And the politicians, the professionals, the white-collar folks, they are seeing this in verse 3, and they're saying he's done wonderful things. The rich and the poor, the distressed and the privileged, they're watching the empire crumble and they're celebrating this act of God. As it says in verse 9, this is our God. We have hoped for him that he might save us. This is the Lord that we've hoped for. Let's take pleasure and rejoice in his salvation. There's a song that I love. Its tune is a catchy bluegrass, bluegrass uh, classic. It's called I'll Fly Away. You've probably heard of it because it's one of the most common songs in all of America. It is a great song. I love to play it. But it is terrible theology. God's redemption is not to snatch us out of the material world so that we can all puff up into some ethereal cloud. That narrative, which is so common in our country, is not biblical, and it's also illogical. And we always like to know illogical things in theology when we're preaching, because we're not in a culture that's going to let us uh, slide on that stuff anymore. Here's often how Christianity is described, but skeptics will rightly note a contradiction in this story. God creates the physical world, and he says it's good. He makes the earth and everything in it. Humans, according to the Christian belief, have broken this creation. So would not a God proclaimed to be living and active and personal and creative seek to restore his original creation? Why would he create the world? And then once humanity disorders it, why would God turn on his creation and then deem it inherently bad? If God made the world and it's good, then why would he change to wanting people to escape it. Would he not want to restore the original? That's actually what we see in the Bible if we read it as one big story from Genesis through this section of Isaiah all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. 
The earth is good, according to the Bible's account of God. It's good, and it's just that right now, it's broken. So Christians are not made to long to fly away from it. We're made to long for something more, and we don't have that yet. But it's not just to escape this world. It's to see it remade to how it was originally designed. We can long to see Isaiah 25 fulfilled. It's disruptive, I think, and and doubt-inducing for humans, for us, to think that we're supposed to despise the material world. When we read that it's good, but then we're also hearing that we're supposed to despise it. I think that causes genuine confusion in people's souls. You read Genesis, you know the creation's good, and then you go experience the tranquility of a pasture or the majesty of a mountain. And then you sing songs and you hear ideas that imply that you should despise the earth. What are we supposed to do with that? That's confusion. We're made to long for the rescue. But the earth in itself is not a prison, friends. It's just a dilapidated creation. It's waiting to be restored. So not only does God crush the empire, he invites us into the majestic goodness of his kingdom. This is our hope, and that's what the passage is laying out for us. Your English Bible might say Lord of hosts in verse 6, and that can also be translated God of angel armies. So picture an army of angels. Imagine yourself on a mountaintop castle, like, I'm going to not pronounce this right, but the Neuschwanstein, which is this castle in Germany that Walt Disney's castle is designed after. You should Google it. Good luck spelling it. Uh, it's on top of a of a of like a small butte surrounded by these mountains in Germany. It's incredible. Imagine being in that castle surrounded by these hulking celestial soldiers while you're feasting on delicious rich foods and imbibing a wine that calms the heart and delights the tongue. What a scene. Here is where we see heaven meet earth. The rocky crags of a real mountain with the spiritual world of angels standing guard. Of course, this scene would bring the rich and the poor together. We might say something like, mortals join the mighty chorus which the morning stars began. Father love is reigning over us. Brother love binds man to man. This is our hope, friends, in the fullness of time that Isaiah 25 would be realized. But what if you don't believe in God and or, uh, or you're just facing doubt about God, then this probably sounds ridiculous. And I understand that. Sometimes I feel like I can make a rational appeal to faith, an apologetic, we call it. Um, and sometimes I think that's just near impossible, and, and I feel that way about this passage. It's hard to make a rational appeal for what the future looks like if you're struggling to believe in God in the present. I understand that. I empathize with that. All I can say is that I sense in creation an order that points to design and enchantment. And I also sense in this creation that its potential is not being realized, that it's stifled by brokenness. And I also sense a spiritual, personal God. I believe the beautiful design of creation and its concurring brokenness need reconciling. And I see in Christianity a reconciliation of those things. And it begins now, and it's completed 
in the fullness of time. And how does God breach that, how does he bridge that gap? How does he repair the corruption of his creation? He takes its poison and its ruin and he takes it upon himself. As verse 8 says, he swallows up death forever. He doesn't just erase his people's shame. He actually puts it inside of himself. And he restores his children by wiping away their tears. Do we eat the full feast in the majestic castle today? No. But we taste our future when we gather together like this to sing. And when we meditate on promises like this. And especially when we come around this table. If you're coming here tonight and you're riddled with shame or you're overcome with sorrow, this is what Isaiah 25 is saying to you. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord above will wipe away tears from all faces and his people's shame he will take away from above because the Lord has spoken and on that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We've hoped for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've hoped for him. Let's take pleasure and rejoice in his salvation. So come and eat with me at the banquet that points to this great future.